The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. This is the 3CR Spoken Word Program, and today I'm talking to Anne M. Carson. Um, welcome, Anne. Thanks, Di. Lovely to be here. Now, we last spoke to you about your book, Writing on the Wall, which was about uh, some uh, the a freed Greek slave. That's right. That was a very exciting project to me because I was able to bring together my social justice values and poetry, and it was a poem that I'd written... I think it was about 10 years ago, but was able to repurpose for a experimental sort of social justice little project, which was donating it to a anti-slavery organisation. And that was really wonderful because these activists had never used the arts to further their aims. And so they were very excited and felt very nourished, actually, to have the arts sort of coming into their space and contributing something as a way of communicating their message in a different form. I think poetry is often underutilised as a method of um, essentialising experience and conveying a message in the social justice arena, which tends to be very kind of logical and argumentative rather than working with images and stories and in the way that poetry does. That's right, and that's what the um, the CEO of this organisation said. She was a lawyer and she was used to arguing at a very high intellectual level. But she was also someone who was very sensitive and so the poem that I had written about imagining a slave actually being released from slavery... Um, really spoke to her and and she just felt goosebumpy and touched in a way that her advocacy in courts didn't quite touch her. Um, now you've got a new book which is about to come out and what's the name of the new book? It's called Two Green Parrots. And it seems, I had a look at it, it seems to be about, um, it's got quite a lot of nature in it, you know, lots of birds and plants, and but then it's got a more of an occasional poem side to it as well. well how did you decide what to include? I suppose I looked at what I'd produced over the last maybe five or six years and tried to choose the poems that spoke to me um, as a whole. You know, I suppose I was choosing poems that might might go together and create a sort of a bigger story, I guess, without wanting to be too doctrinaire about that. But yes, as you say, the first section is primarily uh, birds and botanical, you know, trees and flowers. Maybe that's because it was a time when my mum was dying and there was a lot of um, support that I got through the natural world. And I think they've, that support and that belonging that I felt really helped me deal with uh, her process of dying. She and I were very close, so it was very hard to let her go. Um, but the natural world was such a solace in that and um, and it was a solace for her too mm. and I think that came through in the writing that I was doing at that time. Yes. 
And um, it's such a wonderful thing to step outside and look up and look around and, you know, be conscious of the nature that we inhabit and uh, to have some awareness of it and to express that awareness. Yeah, I mean, there's wonderful things in the built environment for sure and human culture and all of that side of life. And the second section has probably quite a lot of poems that are about art. Um, But there's something about the natural world that softens our glance and changes how we hear things. It's not electronic. It's, It's totally different. And I think that activates different parts of us. Yes. Now, um, the book is published by Ginandera Press, which is an Adelaide publisher, um, and we expect it out sometime in April. Yes, perhaps um, early March, but probably early... Oh, sorry, perhaps late March, but probably early April. Yes, great. And it'll be available in all the usual shops. Yes, and from my website. And what's your website? www.annemcarson.com And that's A-N-N-E-M-C-A-R-S-O-N. That's it, yeah. Yes. Thank you. Great. Okay, so um, would you like to share a poem? I'd like to start with a poem called Axiology. And um, this poem is really important to me because of two things, I guess, and I love finding this um, Japanese type of ceramic which the poem's based on it's called kintsukuroi and it's a form of ceramic where the broken pieces of a pot particularly a valuable pot are put together with gold a meander of gold through it and I just think that's so beautiful you'll see from the poem that that captures something of what I value in life both on the material level the materiality of mending things um Our culture these days is such a throwaway culture and I love the fact that a bootmaker will put a new sole on a shoe or the old watch can be repaired. I love that. Um, I don't like waste. (laughs) I like to be as sustainable as I can. So I love that notion. And I love the idea that something is actually made more beautiful through being repaired in that sort of way. And I guess that picks up psychological and emotional themes in the in the um, poem Um, so it's called axiology and axiology is the study of values if I was ceramic I'd be kintsukuroi pottery which has been knocked dropped broken into shards then mended with gold or silver lacquer a delicate meander of liquid gold flowing into the breach Kintsukuroi, the word a whole world, evoking the kind of place where mending is valued more than the break, where old is treasured more than new, where putting things back together is an art form, things more beautiful for having been broken. It's such a leap of perception to think of things being more beautiful for having been broken I mean it's it's so the opposite of the way we normally feel and think isn't it it is and obviously um, you know if we're talking psychologically um, there needs to be a mending you know it doesn't just happen Mm. there's a process to get to that Mm. to get to that point where um, something that has come apart through some sort of trauma 
um, can come back together again. Yes, with wisdom learned, gained from the experience and empathy um, yes. into others' suffering. Yes. I guess we're becoming more trauma alert and trauma educated in our culture and I think that's a really good thing, not just for um, those of us who were born here and might have had traumatic things happen. Most of us have had something traumatic happen in, the ter- in terms of health issues or death of a loved one. But for those who have come here and perhaps left cultures where where they experience trauma, I think we need to provide that sort of support and that sort of empathy and help them with a pathway uh, beyond trauma. And Uh, and that needs a lot of um, resources, really. It does. And um, what we can see already from the people on Manus Island who are winning prizes all over the world for their incredible human rights advocacy and Biru's Bachani winning the Victorian Premier's Literary Award and so on is that there are some really great souls who are experiencing very traumatic situations but somehow coming through that with extraordinary achievements. Yes, it's very inspiring to see that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, so we'll move to the next poem. What would you like to read? Maybe I'll read the title poem, Two Green Parrots. Two green parrots wing across a granite sky. Grief and hope together again, as close as fingers on a hand, feathers on a wing. They don't fly straight as arrows do into a standing target. They are not ammunition fired out of the skies more. They dip and rise, weaving muscle and delight into strands of effortless grace, calling as they go. What do humans know of the calls of birds? But it sounds like liquid pleasure. It sounds like they laugh and make merry against the backdrop of the approaching storm.
This is the 3CR Spoken Word Program and I'm Di Cousins and I'm talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book of poetry, Two Green Parrots. And we just heard a little bit of music from the Gregorian brothers, that's Slava and Leonard Gregorian, um, from their CD Distance and uh, a bit of the uh, track Prayer Flags in Bright Wind. Um, so, uh, what would you like to read next? And, and tell me something about it. I'd like to read the poem, The Artist Removes the Copy of Mourning. Um, this poem had an interesting genesis in that I met this artist, Bridget Nicholson, um, in a park near where I lived. And it turned out that she was an installation artist and she'd done, amongst other things, an installation called Hold. And it really captured my imagination on so many levels. She went up to a town in New South Wales called Gunnedah, which is where my late husband came from. And she did a project with the Indigenous people and the non-Indigenous community up there. Uh, With their permission, she used the idea of the kopi. And the kopi was a, a method or a object that, came about by members of the community putting clay on the heads of women who had lost their husbands. And this clay would stay on the head until it cracked and that was considered to be the mourning period. This is how I understand it, via Bridget. Anyway, I just thought it was amazing to discover this because, as I said, my late husband came from Gunnedah and uh, I think it was three years since his death when I discovered this and I just was reminded again about how sophisticated many of the cultural practices that we've discovered are from the Indigenous community and how criminal it is that we have so made them primitive when when they're not. Their culture has been so extraordinarily sophisticated. And here was another example about mourning, which I think our culture does so poorly. Um, It was a very sophisticated method. So this is the poem. The artist removes the copy of mourning. After seeing Hold, an installation by Bridget Nicholson, winning Yering Sculpture Prize 2016. Bridget smooths wet clay onto my head, gentles it like a bonnet round the bones. It's a snug fit, a cool soothe of moisture in the desert of sorrow. Drying, it tightens, hands holding my bony brief bony grief cage, wordless comfort when nothing else helps. We do mourning so poorly, the Indigenous people perfected their way over millennia, leaving the cap in place until it fell to pieces, dust returning to dust, never disconnected from their ground of being, their wisdom to know how to harness Earth's comfort, connection even at the most unanchored of times. The artist gathers women from all cultures in Gunnedah, indigenous, settler, immigrant, into a makeshift family. She fashions caps for each, as personal as fingerprints. The particular arc and plane of each woman's bone creates the shape, each imprinted with her story of loss, lover, spouse, Child, sibling, parent, country, culture. 
She fires the caps in a local kiln, bone and ochre hued. Held upside down, they resemble bowls, or two water-carrying hands joined, hung canopied in exhibition. They are 198 life-giving vessels that have not forgotten their genesis in death, like all begotten life. Jostling, they are eloquent with loss, dynamic with what is still held. Extraordinary. Um, it's an extraordinary set of images, the, you know, the, the idea that these caps in some way or other are still holding that loss and that grief. Yes, it is, isn't it? Very moving. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I was very um, thrilled that Bridget did an, a next um, iteration of this project and included my poem in it, and she printed an image of the copy that she had painted herself with the poem next to it. Mm. And um, that was a lovely holding again yeah. of, of that idea of the comfort for the grief. Yes, and, and a nice synergy that you found that during your own period of grief. Yeah, it was fantastically helpful. Yes, wonderful. Um, so where will we go next? Maybe I could just say one more thing. I don't yeah. quite know how to frame it, but I'll just say it. Um, and part of the process that we went through was we took my poem back to the Indigenous community in Gunnedah to um, have their feedback and permission about being public about this process because we didn't want to step on any toes and um, wanted to make sure that that was okay for it to be a public thing. And there were a couple of comments that helped me shape the poem and so now here it is. Oh, well done. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, so what would you like to read next? I'd like to go to a poem called Cloud Combing. Um and this was on a motorcycle tour with my current partner. And when you're on a motorcycle, you're out in the weather in a totally different way to a car. And sometimes that's not very pleasant, but mostly it's absolutely fantastic. And you see an experience in your body and ears and eyes, just amazing things in a very present sort of way. So this poem came out of a Tasmanian tour, Cloud Combing near Maropna Caves, Tasmania. It's been a hard night. Morning finds the sky in disarray, massed with cloud knots and snarls. Once fine strands of stratus are now matted, messy. The wind gets to work with its wide-toothed comb, working the snags free, patient, persistent. By mid-afternoon, Gentle order is restored. Wispy tendrils fan out from the crown. Long kinked tresses cascade, catching last glints of sun. Beautiful. And it's so true that very often, you know, clouds look like they have been combed. You know, they have that neat uh, stranded, you know, feathery effect they do, and, and also that idea of the tresses. They can often really look like tresses of hair with that wavy kinks running through it. Yes. In um, very ancient China, there used to be a kind of a systematic system of in the interpretation of the shapes of clouds. 
fascinating. Yeah. I wonder what they would make of hair like that. Mm. So um, what would you like to read next? I'd like to read a poem called Traveller's Fantasy in Washington, D.C. I went to Washington. Um, I was presenting at a conference in Baltimore, and so I took the train to Washington, D.C., and um, did some wonderful... I did a wonderful walking tour with... Um, a poetry walking tour that took you around with headphones on listening to poems that have been written by poets in that particular area. And this was en route to a different, another poetry site. Traveller's Fantasy in Washington, D.C. A small blue house on New Hampshire Avenue. The kind of blue that calls you in. Long, skinny, three stories tall, The doorway is flanked by two coach lights with flames flickering, even though it's day. A scarlet crested cardinal, my first, alights on a branch nearby. Bright and singular this wet, dull day. He hops onto the sidewalk, moves to get my attention, motions me inside. I climb the seven steps to the front porch. The lock opens to my key turn. My umbrella slides into the stand. The cadence of my footfall is familiar to the floorboards and the house settles into camaraderie. In the kitchen, the blue cup fits my hand. Slipping into my spot at the bench, I see the courtyard, fogged in rain, dressed in mist. Raindrops swell to transparent opalescence then fall from the flowering dogwood. They perfectly offset the brilliance of the cardinal who has flown into the yard and sways his tail knowingly. The mysterious communication of birds. (laughs) Another example thereof. Yes. Yes. Um, Very nice to find pretty birds in city places. And particularly when you're by yourself, it's sort of, Mm. it's very companionable. Mm. Yeah. Now, what would you like to read next? This poem is um, emblematic, I guess, of a certain orientation to the world. Um, And I I loved finding out the detail that forms the heart of this poem. John and Yoko meet for the first time. 1966, her avant-garde art showed at a chic London gallery. An apple sells for 200 quid. Art which taunts. He reckons she's a wanker. High on the ceiling, a canvas. He climbs the ladder to read letters so small he has to use the magnifying glass hanging on a chain to read them. Later, He says that if she had have written, fuck you, he would have walked out. Her philosophy, compressed into a single affirmative yes, voiced against the nihilism of the times, the fashion of smashing pianos with hammers, of destroying in the name of art. This tiny three-letter word strikes a spark, which kindles a revolution, kicks off a whole generation. Amazing, isn't it? These moments in history 
whether it's one's own life or famous people's lives, we, everything hinges on that moment. Um, and, you know, John Lennon finds uh, yes on the ceiling of Yoko Ono's exhibition and says okay. That's right, and, <laughs> and captures something that he was also standing for. Right, yeah, yeah. affirmation. Yes, affirmation. Not negation. Yeah, no, it's um, it's a it's a marvelous sort of starting point for the poem, isn't it? You know, to encapsulate it in that that moment. It's intrinsically so poetic, isn't it? It is just just her her art form and her the simplicity of it. I love yes, um, and that it was um, you know up there on the ceiling, and he had to climb to see it, and he had to use the magnifying glass. <laughs> Maybe that's how. You know, in that nihilism, maybe that's exactly right too. Yes, yes. Now, the last poem you're going to read, there's a bit of a story behind it. Yes, it was um, It was a lover who killed himself many years ago um, in the 80s and it was a totally devastating experience. And it took me many years to write this very small poem, but I felt like this poem sort of was my contribution or my coming to grips with that. Obviously, it took a long time, but it's called Pocket and Seed, Immemoriam Lindsay Darth. He'd given up smoking, said the desire for nicotine had seeped from his body of its own accord. But he sucked smoke from the exhaust pipe like his lungs craved it, his life depended on it. I heard it from his father, voice hoarse with devastation, like ground harrowed by the plough. It wasn't until that very moment that I found a small, hard seed inside me too, tucked in an inside pocket, kept even from myself. I didn't know I had it in me, pocket or seed. The pact I made that day the only thing I had big enough to make a difference. His death meant I could never take my own. Yes, well, I think when there's such a terrible situation, one does value life and one does see the importance of life. Absolutely, and when you see how that action, even though you can understand someone being driven to that, but to see the effect on the, the loved ones in particular... Um, that was part of my feeling. Yes. Um, well, that's a beautiful poem, and I love your imagery, the pocket and the seed. Uh, it's a beautiful imagery. Thank you. Hmm. Okay, well, we've run out of time. Um, my name's Di Cousins. I've been talking to Anne M. Carson about her new book, Two Green Parrots. And thank you for coming in, Anne. Thanks so much, Di. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was great to hear, hear the, about the new book. And you've got another book coming out as well later in the year, um, Massaging Himmler, was it? That's right, yes. That's the poetic biography of Dr Felix Kirsten. And he enabled 80,000 people to be freed, apparently. Look, it's an amazing story, but at the very end of the war, after he had actually secured the release of 10s and 20s and 30s numbers of people... He had a meeting with Himmler that resulted in the saving of 800,000 lives. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary, yeah. Well, I look forward to talking to you again later in the year. Thanks so much, Di.
This has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.